Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Triano, joined always by Stephen Canistrisi. Hi. This is episode 20, and we will be discussing the Manchester Cornet Band with historian Sue Kinney. Sue is a clarinetist and music educator, and she is also a tenor horn baritone euphonium player in various bands up in New England and along the East Coast. So it was a lot of fun getting to learn some history of this really important band from New Hampshire. And yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, she's been looking into this for a very long time and um, has really done a deep dive into the newspapers of the time. And everything is really well documented with her, all of her uh, facts. You know, she's got more than enough evidence to back up. And it was great to learn uh, a lot more about the Manchester Cornet Band. Then I feel like they've come up in almost every episode. So it's nice to dedicate, you know, a full one to their history. It was really enlightening. If you like what you're hearing, you can follow us on social media, all social media platforms and YouTube. Um, That would really help us out. If you give us a like and a follow over there and engage with us on those platforms, we love hearing from you. Um, You can also do the old fashioned thing and email us at eabb.podcast at gmail.com. And here is episode number 20 featuring Sue Kinney. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sue Kinney, for coming on to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. We're super excited to have you on today to talk all things Manchester and early brass band. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, I guess maybe before we dive into some of the, the Manchester stuff and some of the areas of your research, you mind maybe giving our listeners a little bit of background on uh, your musical upbringing, kind of what brought you into uh, becoming interested in this field of research? Sure. Well, I didn't become interested until rather late. I started taking clarinet lessons when I was seven. And honestly, I don't remember when I didn't play. Mm-hmm. I've been told that we walked into the music store and the music teacher, the the guy who owned the music store, Ted Herbert, who had a swing band in the 30s and 40s, a big swing band, put a clarinet in my mouth. And when I said, can I try that instrument over there? He said, no, girls don't play trumpet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. well, this was in the early 60s. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) So I started taking private clarinet lessons every single week without fail, without break, without vacations. And I practiced an hour every day, just like I was supposed to do. And... And there was no such thing as beginner band at the time. So once I got into junior high, I was put in the band and that was something new and different. Mm-hmm. I'd never been, I'd never really played with anybody else except my teacher or yeah. my brothers. So how, how, how many years was that of not playing with a band and just being on the instrument? Oh, from eight, from second grade to seventh grade. Wow. Okay, so substantial amount of time there. Yeah. Substantial amount of time, right? Then suddenly junior high band and so okay, so this is what we do. This is a <laughs> yeah. band. I... And yeah, it was it was to. a lot it was a lot of fun. And of course, uh my I went into got into high school and my clarinet teacher was my band director. And then he said one day, I need a 
tenor, a lead tenor to offset your brother, the tremendous lead alto. And so I started playing tenor sax in the jazz band. And so we started playing, you know, we had a huge book. We used to play dances. We played out, we played gigs. And so um, I'd grown up listening to swing. And so it was a pretty easy transition for me. Mm -hmm. um, and then in high school, I played a lot of summer stock. Every summer I was playing in the pit for musicals and I played the I played in the orchestra for the local um choral society so I was playing in high school I was playing Carmina Burana Elijah you know things like that <laughs> and of course then there was the New Hampshire Youth Orchestra and I was principal clarinet in that then later of course you, you're doing all state and you're doing you know i made all eastern and i was able to fortunately play under frank battisti who was um director of the wind ensemble at nec new england conservatory another event that i do remember was playing under sarah caldwell sarah caldwell was the leader uh the director conductor of the boston lyric opera at the time and she came up to manchester and we put on um we put on Copeland's Tender Land. And so yet another new genre for me, because I obviously I'd never played in an opera. I'd we'd done the oratorios with the um with the Manchester Choral Society. And then of course I went off to college and I ended up going to the University of Colorado, which was a fantastic, fantastic opportunity. Prior to that, I had had some some let's see colorful band directors <laughs> and if you know any of the stories about william ravelli i had i had guys like that super old school they threw things at you they swore at you they yelled at you they made you stand up play your part sit down yeah, move yeah. down to the end of the row oh kinney you played that well move up into the first clarinet section and it was like wow so i made sure that i was prepared when I when I came in, I I, I was just taught that be prepared. Mm -hmm. yeah, Dr. And, Bond always had some good uh, some good Ravelli stories for sure for us. Oh, yeah. for sure, yeah. yeah. Um, and so when I got to um, CU, and Hugh McMillan was the band director, and he was an old school guy, and the first piece was Glinka. <laughs> Bruce Lennon and Ludmilla. And here's the freshman sitting back in the third clarinet section. Kenny, stand up, play this pot. Wow. Move up to the first clarinet section. And I was like, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then he retired after my freshman year and Alan McMurray came in. And, and Dr. McMurray was absolutely tremendous for putting the CU wind ensemble on the map he he created the wind ensemble in the in the style of um the netherlands wind ensemble it was a time when they were doing you know historically accurate performances were occurring and i switched from b flat clarinet to basset horn and so i got to play all the repertoire that required basset horn you know which a lot of other people weren't didn't, weren't getting the opportunity to play. And so then my senior year, there was a new, a, a new group formed, WASB, wind, wind ensembles and symphonic bands, like the, the World Association of 
symphonic bands and wind ensembles, I guess. And their first conference was at the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester, England. And what they did was they sent out invitations all over the world and they selected one wind ensemble from every, you know, the major country in the world that submitted. Mm. And they took three wind ensembles from the United States and CU Wind Ensemble was one of them. Okay. And so we did a five week tour of England and we spent a week or so at the Royal Northern College and of course, I, I played bass and horn, and Fred Fennell conducted us. Oh, that's awesome. It was it, it was tremendous, yeah. So that you know, since then, I have I have always loved the repertoire of wind ensemble symphonic band. Us too. Yeah, it's 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 great. It's great stuff. Um, after that, I. I didn't continue on in, in graduate school. I probably should have. Bob Reynolds asked me if I would come to Michigan and do, you know, continue study there. But I, for some reason, decided not to and um, actually left music for quite a while. I was in banking for about 10 years and then things occurred. I injured my hand being an auditor and doing so much typing and I, after 10 years, I left banking and my orthopedic surgeon actually said, what are you doing in banking? Get back into music. <laughs> His father was a trumpeter for Cleveland, I believe. Okay. So yeah. he said, yeah, what are you doing? You're, you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong place. And so I just started teaching clarinet lessons again. When you were in Colorado, was that for performance or is that music education? It, I was in performance. Yes. I, at the time, I was scared to death of kids. I didn't want to have anything to do with teaching. <laughs> uh -huh. So, I, and I wanted to be a performer. And, you know, I did a lot of performing and that's that's where I felt that I wanted to be. I took an audition uh, with the BSO. The BSO was looking for a, um, a bass clarinetist. And I was a finalist for the bass clarinet chair for Boston. Oh, wow. And one of the, one of the, main issues was that they wanted the the person who they selected to begin the summer before my senior year and of course i was preparing senior auditions we were going on that concert tour and so it just didn't it didn't work out mm -hmm. it would have been it would have been awesome if it had yeah but i sure. think my life would have been you know very different mm -hmm. definitely <laughs> right. so what what was your foot back into the door after being encouraged to to rejoin music I started playing more pit bands. I played with the Philharmonic. I played in local symphonic bands, uh, town bands. I played for about six years down in Cambridge, Mass. There was an organization called the Mandala Folk Dance Ensemble, and they played. They, there was a group of musicians that played for an ethnic dance group. So we, I learned to play Balkan music. And I had been, already been working on playing klezmer music. I'd gone to klez camp and suddenly I'm going to Balkan camps and just learning to play a variety of different kinds of instruments for all of dances, primarily European mm -hmm. folk music. Mm -hmm. But we did we did others. We did like mix. There were Mexican dances, lat, other Latin American dances. But yeah, the Balkan music and the klezmer music were 
by far my my favorites to There's play. There's been a, a video popping up on Facebook a lot lately. I don't know if either of you have seen it. There's it's a all female Balkan brass group, and they kind of stroll the street kind of going around and playing and yeah this stuff is super catchy it gets everybody involved uh as they walk by it's really really fun oh yeah there's a they have a they have a great tradition of brass bands but they also have a great tradition of of clarinet mm -hmm. and it, it i'll tell you it is it is not easy stuff especially when you're playing with you're playing with all these all the other instruments of course the clarinet being in b flat you know you're playing all these crazy mm -hmm. keys right because of all these all these alternate fingerings you're using all the time, it's like it it just about destroyed my hands, and so I had to, I had to quit that. Yeah. But um, yeah, I really enjoyed that an awful lot. It was that was a that was a lot of fun until I got into <laughs> brass bands. Gotcha. And how was that that you made your way into uh, into the brass band world? I had a friend who was curating an exhibit at the New Hampshire History. New Hampshire Museum, Museum of New Hampshire, State of New Hampshire Museum, I guess. Mm -hmm. And he lived in Concord. He was working on a number of bands from New Hampshire, New Hampshire town bands, 1850s, 60s, in, you know, into the war. And so he asked me to go down to the Historic Association in Manchester and transcribe a little book. And so I just, I went down because I lived in Manchester. I went down and transcribed it for him. And the woman who was in charge of the research library was Betty Lassard. Betty Lassard was the person that people went to at the time. She gave me this little little book and she said, basically, we don't know what it is. We don't know who's, who wrote it. And so I started transcribing it. And it's, the book was from the 1930s, I believe. It was, sorry, it was donated in the 1930s. The book actually was written around 1905, 1906. And it's just a small little journalist sketchbook. So little penciled entries. After much research, I found that what he was doing is what I've been doing the past 25 years. Finding out who was this Manchester Cornet band. Who were these men? Who was Walter Dignam? Who was George Goodwin? Now, this was 1905-06. So there were still people alive, of course, that remembered the band. And he would he because he was an editor for the one of the Manchester for the Manchester newspaper, the Union, he put out a, a call. You know, he just he wrote a wrote an, an article in the newspaper saying, Does anybody remember? this band who are these people so uh there was a man who wrote in and said i used to play with this band and gave details of all the guys mm -hmm. little bios so that's what got me started once i transcribed this little 35 page book of just these like chicken scratchings i was hooked and so i just started doing more and more research and Let's see, I probably started that in 95, I guess. In 97, 98, two guys walked into the Historical Association. I happened to be working there part-time. Mark Elrod and John B. And I <laughs> just happened to stroll in the door. <laughs> and I didn't know them from Adam. And, of course, Mark introduced himself, and this is my book, and this is what I do, and, you know, the guru 
you know, the, the guy who knows everything. And John Bionaz, um had a small had a small serenade band, the Twelfth New Hampshire Serenade Band. And he says, "Kenny, get your nose out of the books. Come play with us." And I said, "Well, John, I'm a clarinetist." <laughs> Well, he gave me a euphonium and he said, here, just learn to play this. You're a musician. You can do this. It's like, okay. And I did. I took a few months and I learned to read bass clef and, and learned playing euphonium. And now I just adore the euphonium. I love mm -hmm. teaching euphonium. It's a beautiful instrument. The sound is just gorgeous. And I could listen to euphonium solos on YouTube all day long. So I started playing with the 12th New Hampshire and we did gigs all over Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont. We played, we did a lot of gigs and I just fell in love with the music, but also at the same time, I was doing all of this social or socio-cultural history of the band, of the guys. So when we performed, of course, John would get up and talk about the band the Man Manchester Cornet Band and the Port Royal Band and the Third New Hampshire because those guys came from Fisherville right near Concord. Mm -hmm. I mean, all these guys knew each other. New Hampshire is a small <laughs> state. All the musicians, we yeah, still yeah. all know each other. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so John would just tell stories from the regimental mm -hmm. histories, mm -hmm. and and we and we would play the music a lot of from the Manchester part books and from the Port Royal part books because they are just down outside of Concord mm -hmm. in Hopkinton. And then I guess it was 2000, we decided that we just go to Gettysburg and march in the Remembrance Day Parade, because yeah. why not? And that's mm -hmm. where we met Yari. We were invited to play with Federal City at certain events, because generally Federal City is, is, a, is a small group of people and you know, people in Federal City are superb musicians, and I'm just an imposter. I'm a clarinetist playing <laughs> tenor horn, you know. <laughs> and Mark would, you know, Mark would always give me, Mark Elrod, I always got my horns from Mark. He'd just say, here, play this one. Oh, and, and then, you know, a couple of weeks later, oh, here, let's try this one. And of course, I have to, you know, adjust mm -hmm, my yeah. fingering. Sometimes it played on the left, sometimes it played on the right. And then, you know, you have to mess, always mess with the fingerings because of the intonation issues. But I, I just loved it. I enjoyed going down, down south, I guess I call <laughs> <Yeah>. it, <laughs> from up here. When I first heard about the Manchester Cornet Band, I was an undergrad. And I had Dr. William Kearns as my American music teacher and Dr. Kearns of now I'm learning more and more, was fairly prominent musicologist at the time in the 70s and 80s. And um, I, you know, he said, you come from Manchester, New Hampshire, and you've never heard of the Manchester Cornet Band. Well, you know what? Nobody ever did. Nobody knew. They, they'd been forgotten, unfortunately. Did they not transition into a community band or, or concert band? No, they did not. Actually... I don't know when they stopped playing. I know that in in the, in 1900 or the, in the late 1880s, early 1890s, I guess they transitioned and became a National Guard band. Oh wow! So there was the New Hampshire National Guard, um, and they were affiliated with like the mm -hmm. First Regiment, 
of the New Hampshire National Guard. And there, there, then there, I believe there's a third regiment at the time of turn of the century of the New Hampshire National Guard and the current Nevis band in Concord. They actually did become a town band out of the, out of their regimental National Guard band. But I don't know what happened to Manchester Cornet Band yet because I still haven't read the newspapers. And this is where all this this is the the difficulty of this kind of research because all of the information is in all of the newspapers. I have only very recently, actually only this summer, like last month, found digital newspapers. I've done all of my reading of newspapers on microfilm even more time consuming because i've been doing this now for 25 years so yeah and manchester papers manchester was a small town nothing's been digitized i started from the first extant newspaper that we have in the historical society then of course i had to go to the manchester library and then what those two don't have was was at Dartmouth. And so I ended up going to Dartmouth um, for a few years. And then I walked in last spring and suddenly everything is off campus. And I'm thinking, no, how can this happen? I need these newspapers. I don't want to have to wait weeks and weeks. So so we kind of just touched on the end of the band, maybe we can cycle back and uh, can you give us maybe a little bit of uh, some of your findings and some some of your research on the Manchester Cornet Band uh, on the front end of the timeline? <laughs> the first newspaper that has survived in Manchester was from January 1st, 1840. And on that day in the newspaper, there was a call for the bandsmen to report for their annual meeting. So clearly there were there was a band prior to eight, in the 18 late 1830s there were there was a band. There were bands in New Hampshire as early as 1820s most of them were wind bands. Okay? But it just shows that they they were already in existence. Not the Manchester Cornet Band, but it was called the Amiskeg Band. Now, if you're, if you're familiar with the history of Manchester, New Hampshire, the Amiskeg Manufacturing Company is the reason Manchester existed. Okay. They were the largest textile manufacturing company. They became the largest textile manufacturing company in the world. The band, the brass band movement in England grew up around mm-hmm. the mills. The mill owners created the bands basically to keep the guys out of the pumps, yeah, yeah. you know, right. give them something mm-hmm. uplifting to do. But that didn't, that, that's not the way it formed the United States. Now, what's very interesting is Walter Dignam was born in Northern England at the be, at, in the beginnings of the British brass band movement. He was from Lancashire, England, and that between Lancashire and Yorkshire, that's where the British brass bands began. Right. Dignum was was right there at the beginning. Now, what is interesting is that his his family, his extended family, came from Ireland. Like a lot of Irish, they they went to Lancashire for 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 work. 
you know, to work in the mills, to work in the textile mills. Digna, by the time he was 15, was apprenticed in the textile mills. This was not a, this was a poor family, a poor mm -hmm. Irish family, a poor Irish Catholic family. But his uncle, Christopher Gallagher, was an organist and music teacher. When he came to the United States, the Providence City Directory states that he was an organist and music teacher. So I can only conclude that Dignam learned all of his, got all of his musical, musical education from his uncle. Now, I've been reading about Catholic liturgical music, trying to learn about that, because Dignam was first and foremost a Catholic, a Catholic organist, choir director. But he, he, so he was a tremendous organist, great choir director, great E-flat cornetist. If you've heard any of the any of the music, that's what he played. So, it, so Walter Dignam, in relation to the Manchester Cornet Band, was the the band leader or the the manager? I I believe that he would have been a member of the Manchester Brass Band at the at that point. By 1842, the Amiskeg Band had was calling itself the Manchester Brass Band, and then there were other names. There was the Mechanics Band, the Stark Band, the Scatterquag Band. That's all the same group, or those were different bands? We don't know. There's there's no way to know because we don't know who the leaders were. We don't know who any of the players were. Some of these bands only played for one or two gigs that I could find in the paper. But then by, 18, by 1842, the Manchester Brass Band is pretty firmly in place. Dignam comes in 46. So the Manchester Brass Band then continued more and more gigs, not just summer, 4th of July concerts and picnics and political rallies, but now then they started doing winter concerts. And um, so by, I would say, the early 1850s, Dignam was probably the lead E-flat cornetist, okay? And so there's always a question, what does it mean to be the leader of the band? Playing all the high notes. Playing all the high notes, yeah. He was the E-flat soloist, okay? Um, and then the other man, George Goodwin, he was, he conducted the band in gotcha, gotcha. concert. So Goodwin, was, as, a, as a child, he was a cellist. And he, at about age 17, I believe, he went down and was a member of the band in the Charlestown shipyard in Boston. Learned to play trombone down there. We don't, I don't know when he came back to Manchester or why he came back to Manchester. He was from the, the coast, New Hampshire coast. And he married a Manchester girl. And so at some point, Goodwin and Dignam get together basically take over the band, reincorporated in 1854. And that's where the famous image comes from with all the headshots of the, Man of, of the Manchester band, which I imagine you've seen. From, eight, from the incorporation in 54 to the Civil War is their heyday. They are playing all over the place. Dignam is, was hired as the church organist for the, for the Catholic parish in 1852 so he is also playing organ at all of the masses two to three masses every sunday and everything else that catholic church mm -hmm. organists need to do but to get back to the manchester brass band 
once they transitioned, they once they incorporated, they became the cornet band with Goodwin and Dignam. Was there a hierarchy between them? Uh, well, if you look at the offices, Dignam was always the president. So, and it was always called Dignam's Band. On the on the the playbills on the programs, it would say George Goodwin conductor and Walter Dignam leader. Or there was a, there was another term. There was another term though. They didn't always call Goodwin the conductor. Something something different. And I'm, I'm I'm drawing a blank here. But um, Dignam was always playing the solos. And then sometimes Dignam and Goodwin would play duets together. They often played a duet, a trombone E-flat cornet duet um, from William Tell Overture. Does the music for that still exist? I don't know. I'd have to look. Hmm. I'd, have to, I'd have to look. Um, yeah, yeah. We, have, we are very fortunate very, very fortunate that Walter Dignam's grandchildren donated 17 boxes of his music to the Historical Association because there were parts of the family that said, why just throw this away? No, we don't need this. And then another family said, another family member said, we should keep this, we'll donate to the Historical Association and let them do with it what they will. And Thank goodness. Are those complete band parts or is are those just his E flat parts? <laughs> there's there's a lot of music. There are three boxes of part books. So there are there's the eighteen forty nine set, Manchester Brass Band. There's an eighteen fifty two set, which is usually called the first set. There's the eighteen fifty four set, which is usually called the second mm -hmm. set. And it's the it's that music that people like Mark Elrod and Paul Mayberry and Bob Bacchus, the, that's the music that these guys make parts and scores for that can mm -hmm. be played. There are other part books, not complete sets. There are there are part books for quadrille band. He's got three, I've got three or four boxes of music, just sacred music, just for the church. And then there's the quadrille band music. There is just, there is just so much music in these 17 boxes. And these boxes are those, those mm -hmm. large, boxes that you find in research libraries, right? Yeah. And uh, in the late 90s, I created the index for those boxes. And that's that's the index that we use that anybody that goes into the historical society and wants to look up anything that they use that index now. And I carry that with me all the time. Yeah. But um, as far as the gigs that they did in the 50s, they were performing a winter concert series of three to four concerts, a summer concert series outside, one night a week. And they would play in various bandstands and parks throughout Manchester. They were also playing for the militia units. So Manchester had a, a number of militia units. And these, of course, they played for the musters. There was a May and September muster. And of course, they'd have to go out and do the military exercise. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the militias visited or were invited by militia companies in other cities and states and towns. So if the Amiskeg veterans were invited by the Salem, Massachusetts militia, they would take two or three days and go to Salem, Mass. They take the band mm. with them. Now, of course, all these guys had jobs. 
We have to remember that they yeah. all had jobs. Most of them worked in the Manchester mills. They were mechanics, they were machinists, they worked in like Dignam did in the print works. And Dignam is still working basically full time in the textile mill until 58, I think. So he worked for over 10 years, up to 12 years still in the textile mills while he was playing with the band, playing with the, were playing with the quadrille band, playing in orchestras, playing in a pit band and playing at church. Yeah. It's funny how these, you know, people were alive so long ago, but really, I mean, they were, they were doing the freelance thing that all of us are doing now. They were doing it back then too. You know, it's, it's funny. Nothing really has changed, you know, nothing has changed. Yeah. Nothing has changed. Exactly. Fantastic. And, yeah. and if it, when you look at the amount of music that he wrote out, there's a, there's a, there's a line in um, the memoirs of father McDonald from St. Anne's church. They t- the, the sister, Camilla talks about Dignam staying up late every night writing out music for the choir to save expenses. And he did the same thing for the band. He wrote all of that, all the part books, he wrote all the music in. He, well, let's say he wrote most of the music in. How much Goodwin wrote in, we, I don't know. It's, it's really difficult to tell the, the, the notation the notational style, the mm-hmm. difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but he spent hours, hours writing, writing out music for the band. Okay, so we are knocking on the door of the Civil War, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 1859, I actually this morning I got an email with more information. In 1859, the state militia of Massachusetts has a huge muster. All of the state militia of Mass, Massachusetts converge on Concord, Mass, and hold a like, three-day event. And I found that the Manchester Cornet Band was there. And so I'm wondering, how, how, did, how did these guys get hired to play at a Massachusetts muster. I mean, this was a this was a huge deal. The governor of Massachusetts just wanted everybody prepared. He could he could kind of see the writing on the wall. So he wanted his he wanted his militia units to be ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so the Seventh Massachusetts hired Manchester, probably because all the other bands in Massachusetts were hired. Mm-hmm. Either that or the guys in Northern Mass knew the quality of Dignam's band and said, we want these guys because um, this, this uh, militia, uh, some of this militia unit came out of Salem, Mass. And the guys in Salem, Mass, you know, it's so close to the border. They knew the Manchester guys really well. And so they hired uh, Manchester Cornet Band to play in this huge militia one of those explanations is a little bit more uh, flattering than the other one. <laughs> yeah, they were they were really good. We got them because they were good, or the other one is. We got <laughs> them because they were good, because Gilmore had already been taken, <laughs> you know. <laughs> D.C. Hall had already been taken. And so, you know, to get to, you know, to be able to get the Manchester band was, was that was a score. 
And then in 1861, what about the second New Hampshire band? The second New Hampshire started form, being formed by the overflow of, of men who tried to enlist in the first. They almost immediately had a second regiment. So um, the second New Hampshire was encamped over in Portsmouth, over on the seacoast. And the person who was in charge of training them was General Stark, who was the grandson of General John Stark from the Battle of Bennington. Of course, General Stark is from Manchester. He gets on the telegraph wire, I guess, <laughs> to Manchester and says, get the Manchester Cornet Band over here, please. We need to drill these guys. We need we need a band for um, Guard Mountain Dress Parade and everything else that the band does. Mm -hmm. um, so the Manchester Cornet Band hightails it out to Portsmouth and stays for 10 days. Now, of course, they all were allowed to leave their jobs yet again, which they're always doing. <laughs> you know, they're always going on these excursions everywhere and suddenly they're, they're, you know, they're, they're leaving their jobs again and going out and working for General Stark and, and helping to drill the second New Hampshire. Manchester Cornet Band was in for 10 days, as I said, and then they're probably saying, you know, we really, we, we need to get back to our jobs. We don't know when you're going to be called up. So they go back to New back to Manchester. And they, the uh, officers get the Portsmouth Band to come over. So the Portsmouth Band works for three weeks. And at the end of those three weeks, there is a um, grand review of that militia before they head off to Washington. Hmm. And after the review of troops and band... Apparently, uh, the officers and the governor and the former governor and General Stark all get together in a huddle and apparently decide that the Portsmouth band is just not up to snuff. Hmm. They call a Manchester band back. The next morning, they're on the road to D.C. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so the paper says that the Manchester Cornet Band will accompany the second to Washington and we'll be there with them for a week. And of course, then they'll come back home. And there are remembrances in you know various memoirs of the quality of the New Hampshire bands, not only the first, but the second, the third, and then the fourth. And these, these aren't comments from just anybody. These are comments by the Vice President of the United States. Yeah. comments by members of Congress in their memoirs when they're talking about, you know, what they remember from the earliest days of the war. The New Hampshire bands were superb. Because the war had already begun, outside of Baltimore, there is the Thomas Viaduct. And there were Union regiments there because that was the only link into DC by train. And so every train would be stopped yeah. to protect yeah. Washington. And who should be at Thomas Viaduct, but the sixth and the eighth Massachusetts. The eighth Massachusetts and the sixth Massachusetts did not have a band. So the sixth and the eighth Massachusetts 
or thinking, you know what, if these guys are going back home in a week, maybe they'll play for us. So the sixth and the eighth vied for the, the services of the Manchester Cornet Band. And the eighth Massachusetts paid the Manchester Cornet Band a thousand bucks for them to stay with them in Baltimore. And so for, for the month of July, 1861. So the Manchester Cornet Band goes into DC with the second New Hampshire, stays a few days, sees their buddies, you know, other bandsmen that they knew. Then on the 4th of July, they go back to Baltimore and start playing for the 8th Massachusetts. <laughs> they were still civilians. Yeah, yeah. Wow. They still had jobs in Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Telegraphing back every two days, like, hey, I need more time off. I need more I time need off. more time off. <laughs> oh, we're going to, we just got hired. Well, it was in the Manchester paper. In the Manchester paper, it said, uh, the Manchester Cornet Band will spend the next month in Baltimore playing for either the 6th or the 8th. Nope. <laughs> Haven't decided yet. Haven't, you know. Of course, they didn't know. They didn't know because yeah. the, way, the way news traveled back then. And so for years and years and years, for decades, you know, I'm wondering, who did they play for? How did this happen? Until a, f uh, a few years ago, Thankfully, a man from the National Park Service published a diary of a corporal from the Salem Zouave Company of the 8th Massachusetts. And I thank him immensely for publishing this diary because Corporal Reynolds details every single day what happened in Baltimore with the 8th Massachusetts and the Manchester Cornet Band. That's awesome. And that's where I find that they were at the Thomas Viaduct. They paid them a thousand bucks. So on payday, here's how much money you're getting. Here's how much you owe. And every member of the regiment gave a dollar for the band. That eighth enlistment or that eighth accompanying of the regiment was significantly more than anything they would have been making uh, working their job or, or any other type of playing gig. Significantly more. Now, did they have to buy their food from that thousand dollars? We don't know. They were probably given a tent, you know, with the staff, offices and staff. Mm -hmm. But they needed a cook. They needed someone to wash their clothes. But those guys did a, did a tremendous service for the Eighth Massachusetts. And then, of course, they came they came home at the end of the month. So they they accompanied the Eighth um, Massachusetts back to back to uh, Boston. And then they accompanied the Salem Zouaves back to Salem. And then they took the train home from Salem. Hmm. And then, of course, a month later, they're enlisting with the 4th New Hampshire. By that time, they had, they had so much military experience. It was probably like, you know, falling off a log. Like I said, they, they went down to D.C. with the 4th and... Let me see. That would have been September. By October, they're at Fort Monroe in in uh, Hampton, Virginia, and they were all they were put on board the the great the the greatest naval expedition up to that time, and they were on their way to South Carolina with the Port Royal expedition. The regimental history says that there were two funerals on board ship. You know, one of their earliest duties was to have to play for these funerals. 
and basically they take the body, wrap him in a sheet, and they put a, I don't know, 40-pound weight, and they played Plyel's hymn, mm-hmm. and then they let the body slide into the briny sea. Yeah, well, huh. Yeah. It, it, I, can, I, I, I can't imagine, you know, what, what that must have been like to, so early. I mean, they weren't even in battle. They were they were out on the ocean, and then they get to Hilton Head, and they have, you know, they, of course, the band is on the boat. Actually, what everybody's on ships on the ships. I can't remember the number of ships involved, but it was a tremendously large number. And they perform this exercise in the inlet, and, and it's a and it's like elliptical. The ships are going around in an elliptical fashion firing on two forts and basically destroy destroy everything and then they and then um the historians say that all of the bands on all of the ships play the star spangled banner so i can only imagine because i'm sure they couldn't get them all together at the same time playing (laughs) (laughs) so it's like it's like echo taps echo star spangled banner yeah it's very ivesian charles ives exactly (laughs) (laughs) Basically, the the fourth New Hampshire and the third New Hampshire uh, are it, at the Department of the South. That huge military installation on Hilton Head Island in South Carolina. So I guess they were they were the fourth was brigaded with the third and two Connecticut regiments, and I'm, I'm sure there of course there were probably other mm-hmm. brigades down there. I don't know how large the installation was. And of course, you have the 3rd New Hampshire Band and the 4th New Hampshire Band. Now, if you remember, the 3rd New Hampshire Band was from was from Fisherville, which is outside of Concord. They became the Port Royal Band. After spending a couple of months on Hilton Head, the 4th New Hampshire was sent to St. August, Saint, first to Fernandina, then to Jacksonville, and then to St. Augustine. So they're right close together, right on the coast. The 4th New Hampshire was sent down to Fort Marion, and now this fort had not been occupied for over 100 years. So basically they went and they were a cleanup crew. So they cleaned up the fort, basically excavated it, pulled out all kinds of stuff, old Spanish locks and Spanish money and all of these just weird you know things that they would they didn't expect, yeah. and a lot of this that stuff got shipped up to New Hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you know the souvenirs. This uh, Fort Marion was used as a an real an outpost, and the Fourth New Hampshire was there the entire summer of eighteen sixty two. So they did their morning and afternoon duties. They played every evening. They played a concert on the plaza, which was it's it's, it's in, in the center of St. Augustine. It's like a big, like a small central park, hmm. with a with a roof over it. And then you know the town hall, the Protestant church on one side, the Catholic church on the other side, and the plaza was used as um, a, a slave market. Until and, and you know, until the war started, and basically, 
most of the men in St. Augustine were gone. So the, the, this, the town was filled with women and African-Americans. And most of the women weren't too pleased to have a union regiment down there, but they got used to it. And they, in, and there are, there are um, references to the, um, the New Hampshire regiments down there saying that they were decent, nice, clean Yankees, <laughs> but they got band concerts, okay. which they certainly weren't used to. They got a band concert every night, but when the general order came out, the guys in St. Augustine didn't hear for probably quite a while. These guys don't get any information except for the steamers that bring newspapers. So the man, man, the 4th New Hampshire didn't even leave until September. So the band was still playing in September. Yeah. And then after that, they, I guess they all, uh, they were mustered out early to mid-September and they all went home. But of course, can't have a regiment without a band. <laughs> and so they said, Walter, would you please form a band? The officers will pay for it. And so Walter went home and formed another band. And by December or January, the guys in the regiment knew that another band was coming down. The bandsmen most the bandsmen had to enlist as arms bearing soldiers. Right. But they'd be detailed to the band. Mm -hmm. Walter went back down as a civilian. So how did that work? How did that work? He was the band leader. He was a respected man. The, the officers, just like the 8th Massachusetts, the officers took a part of their pay and paid Dignam. Yeah, interesting. And so that wouldn't be considered the, the Manchester Cornet Band, right? That band would still be existing up in Manchester, and then Dignam's new band yep. down there is something completely different. There were two bands. There yeah. was the 4th New Hampshire Regiment Band, and at home, there were still guys playing as the Manchester Cornet Band because Goodwin stayed home. Oh, okay. Goodwin didn't enlist. So <laughs> Goodwin was conducting the Manchester Cornet Band. There were still performances going on at home while Dignam was with the 4th New Hampshire Band. When Dignam's Manchester Cornet Band was technically with the 4th New Hampshire Regiment, uh, they wouldn't call themselves the the Manchester Cornet Band then. No. Gotcha. I it don't. Just, I it, don't believe so. Yeah, it was just like the 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 group of guys type of thing that made it up. Exactly. Yeah. yeah gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I mean, we can call it. We can call ourselves whatever we want, right? We're still the yeah, same yeah. guys. Yeah. Yeah. For uh, sure. We're still yeah, the same yeah. people playing. So just. Just. Just like now. Mm -hmm. The band usually lived with the staff. The field musicians lived with their companies, right? Mm -hmm. But when, now this I'm not exactly sure of. When the guys were detailed to the band, who knows where they were? It seemed they were moving around a lot. Sometimes they'd have to march for miles and miles and miles, play a gig till one or two in the morning, and then walk back to camp. So it was, it was, it was a pretty unique situation. I, I, from my perspective, anyway. So at the end of the war, actually, they were three years men, so they mustered out after three years. Hmm. So Dignamental and, and some of the guys came home. Some were in until six, August of 65. 
But Dignam came home hmm. after spending, what, two years as a civilian? Mm-hmm. So that would have brought him to 64? Or... Yeah, I think he was home. I think he was home by November, by October, November 64. Because then they are now reorganizing the Manchester Cornet Band. Gotcha. Because Walter's finally back. Thank goodness. I thought you said that it was uh, continuously going under Goodwin. It was going under Goodwin until sometime in 63, Goodwin decides to join a circus band. And led led a circus band for the summer of 63. And Hmm. then he got... um, attracted to Salem Mass. Salem Mass had the only, um, had the largest, the only, perhaps, armory after um, Harpers Ferry was taken. Oh, well. So the armory in Salem had a band. I don't know. Wanted a band? Mm-hmm. So Goodwin went down to Salem Mass. Not say sorry. Springfield Mass. Springfield Mass, and play and led the Springfield Arm, conducted the Springfield Armory Band, and started a Springfield Orchestra Club, which was actually also, I believe, very high quality because some members of the Springfield Orchestra Club then became Boston Symphony Orchestra band, uh, Boston Symphony Orchestra members. Oh, wow. So he lived the rest of his life in Springfield, mm-hmm. dying, I think, in the 1890s, perhaps. And then he was buried in Manchester. He and his wife came back to Manchester. Gotcha. Gotcha. So the Manchester component of the band lapsed for a year and a Possibly. half, two years, maybe. Possibly. I'd have to go through the newspapers again. There are sometimes gaps in the newspapers. Right. So, I mean, if I can't get it from Manchester, that means I've got to go to Dartmouth and beg <laughs> for them to bring them back onto campus, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but actually, I have gone, I believe I have gone, I've gone through the newspapers from 1840 up into the 1880s, like every single one. But anyway, yes, yeah, so we, I'm not exactly sure what happened. There were guys who were in Manchester. I'm sure they tried to keep it up because, you know, it had such a reputation. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, th- these were extenuating circumstances. Um, but they came back in in 84, November of 64, you know, they resuscitate the band. But of course, some guys are still at war. Some guys are in Manchester, some guys are sick, some guys are dead, some guys just, they have families and jobs and businesses that they need to, you know, restart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think it was challenging just to reorganize the band after the war, but they did do it, Um, continued to perform concerts, parades, you know, Walter was a little bit older and had suffered, you know, um, had some rheumatism. I mean, they all came back in worse shape. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's put it that way. Yeah, of course. Now, going, going through their medical records, when I was doing this a, a number of summers ago, I was spending days and days and days in the archives getting their 
service records, their pension records, their medical records, mm -hmm. you know, and I, you know, and it, at that point, I felt like I, I knew too much about these guys. This was such personal information, you know, yeah, yeah. reading these, reading these really private medical records was getting a little creepy for me mm -hmm. yeah. because I know these guys personally. Yeah. I know them. I know their wives. I know their kids. I know where they worked. I know where they lived. Yeah. I know who, and I know who they knew. I knew, I know who, who all their friends are. So they came back sickly, but the band did reform and it wasn't like it was in the fifties. But a lot of people in Manchester, of course, remembered mm -hmm. them and they loved Walter Dignam and respected him uh, before the war and after the war. There was there were a couple of concerts every year that were benefit concerts for Dignam and Goodwin. Oh, cool. Because, yes, he got it. Yes, he got a stipend. He got a he, he was he was paid. And of course, he was paid for, you know, all the other ensembles and as organist and you know like we said he was a gig worker mm -hmm. but um by 1875 he was he was ready to um shed that job because he had he had taken on more students two bands of young irishmen formed two brass bands he had a harmon what he called a harmonic orchestra, which is, was a group of young men who, you know, flutes, clarinets, violins that were playing, you know, fairly serious stuff. He also took on the Germania band. Um, the man, the the Germans in Manchester formed a band. He led it, or he conducted it, or coached it. And then, in the eighteen late eighteen sixties, early eighteen seventies. We got a massive migration from Quebec into the mills. So the Irish came in the 1840s and 50s, and then the French came hmm. in the late 60s, 70s. Then you have the what was called the French band. And whether they were a brass band or a mixed wind brass, I'm not exactly sure because I'm... I'm not. I don't research the French band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> at some point, I, at some point, I will have to dig a little bit deeper. But their leader was a guy named um, Lafricaine. His brother was a trumpeter in the Boston Symphony, and so then there, then you had a competition starting, the Manchester Cornet Band, you know, that everybody remembered as such a great band, and this these up and comers, these French. Mm -hmm. And now you have to you have to know that in Manchester, Manchester's divi was divided, and even when I was growing up, was is divided into ethnic enclaves. Mm -hmm. You have the French on the west, you have the Irish down in this area, you have the Poles in this area, you have the Greeks, you have the you have the Jewish population, and then you have all of us who are Anglo, Yankee, um, and so the bands. You had the Irish bands, the French band, the German band, and the Manchester Cornet band. And there was some competition going on. And finally, they it was getting a little bit contentious. So they decided, okay, the French band will play outside on these nights. 
and the Manchester Cornet Band will play outside on these other nights so that the uh, audience wouldn't be pulled in two directions. Hmm. So there wouldn't be the competition. And of course, there's still Saxy Pike, who would be the drum major of any band. <laughs> yeah, the, the showman. Right? The showman. <laughs> oh, yes. Hmm. And I think Yari discussed the um, the mace that he was given when he went into the first. Yeah. yeah. That mace has an interesting story because that got lost. And while I was doing research in the 90s, I was bumping up against other guys who were doing research in other parts of the state of New Hampshire with, with other bands. And I was talking to a guy one day um, who was over in Westmoreland um, in the Keene area where E.E. E. Bagley ended up leading a band. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, Saxy Pike has this famous mace that was given to him. Here's the picture of him. Everybody's seen this picture of Pike with his four and a half foot mace. It's almost as tall as I am. And it's mm -hmm. got this huge silver bulb on the top. And Mr. Probit says to me, I think I saw that once. And I said, you got to be kidding me. He said, let me go and, and, and check this out. He found Saxy Pike's mace. It was being used as a curtain rod in the Baptist church in Keene. Yikes. Yikes. He went to the Baptist church and said, can we take this off, please? Find something else to hang these curtains with. He brought it to us at the Manchester Historical Association and presented it to us. It, it, was, it was definitely a match based on the picture and everything? It, it's engraved. Yeah. The orb on top is engraved. First New Hampshire Regiment Band, Francis Harvey Pike, drum major. Oh, we know it's his. Man, how long has that been hanging up there? Saxe died in 1903, I believe. How it got to Keene, we have no idea. How long it's been there, we have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it just showed up. It's kind of similar, but, but not really but in the same vein as how we say who knows what's what rare instrument is hanging on the wall in applebee's type of thing it's like you don't know like like just things are in random places type of thing yeah, <laughs> That's incredible. yeah in my dreams i think can everything go back to where it belongs yeah exactly <laughs> where where it's easy to find <laughs> yeah where it belongs like if would ha it happened a couple of last one summer last summer i two summers ago i was in manchester and the guy that the guy who runs a research center asked me, "Is this this says the this says it's a picture of the Manchester band?" And I looked at it and I said, uh, "That's the Manchester Vermont band. That's not the Manchester New Hampshire cornet band." So what he did, he shipped it off and sent it off to Manchester Historical Society in Vermont, and they said, "Oh, we're so happy to have this." <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, um, so after Dignam retired from the Manchester Cornet Band, even though he was coaching other bands, mm -hmm. a young cornetist who was also a church organist took over. There was a short period of time where they hired somebody for 600 bucks a year. Mm -hmm. It didn't work out. And so then Horace Gordon took over the band in 1876, seven-ish. Mm -hmm. And he continued with the band all the way to 1900. Okay. But I haven't done the research past that, so I don't know how long he continued with it. Yeah, yeah. But Horace was apparently a pretty darn good cornetist and church organist. Hmm. 
And you think that that's through that 1900-ish time date, you think that the instrumentation was still pure brass? Or they started incorporating Probably woodwinds? Not. Probably not. I'm sure all these bands were going to woodwinds after the war. Actually, the third New Hampshire band that was down at Hilton Head, there was always, they, they did competitions hmm. between the third and the fourth because, I mean, they were equally as good. Mm-hmm. They were both superb bands. So they would play. One would play, the other would play. It's like, you know, the British brass band competitions. And they just, they, they ratchet it up and play more and more challenging, difficult pieces. Well, ultimately what would happen was they'd play Listen to the Mockingbird mm-hmm. and Kyle Krebs would play Mockingbird sounds on his E-flat clarinet. Mm-hmm. So the, the third New Hampshire went down with a B-flat and E-flat and a piccolo because they had Kyle Krebs. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and Kyle and Krebs is one of those guys who came over from Germany with the, you know, with all those German orchestral musicians. Mm-hmm. He ended up leading bands in southern New Hampshire also. But yeah, it was always the competition between the third and the fourth, between Concord and Manchester bands. But we were we were always, we were an all brass band when, when it switched. I'm sure it switched after the war because Dignam was bringing up young clarinetists. Yeah, and it's it's kind of similar to what we were just saying, how we wish everything could go back to where it was at the same time. We kind of wish that the evolution of bands and stuff in the country was a clean line. And like we can say, you know, first there was, you know, woodwind quintets, you know, bands of music and then brass bands and then the concert band. But unfortunately it's not that clean because the Marine band was mixed the whole time type of thing. And and Gilmore. And I think even, uh, Dodworth, maybe they integrated very early on, uh-huh. uh, so yeah, it's it's not as clean, cut and dry as as we would hope. Unfortunately, as we would hope, no. From the from the harmony music to all brass, that is such a drastic, yeah, switch, because mm-hmm. most most of these wind players did they then give up their bassoons and clarinets and learn to play cornets. Well, oh, they could have played off Clyde's. Yeah, that's true. Fingering true. system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we don't know. There, I, I've come across very few guys who doubled on wind and brass, except for Rodolph Hall, hmm. the brother of DC. Mm-hmm. He played not only clarinet, but I believe B flat cornet. And he soloed on both. Although in his letters, he played mostly clarinet, I believe, in the quadrille bands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, there was a, a lot of doubling with brass bands and quadrille bands, so oh, yeah. brass the, players were... Yeah. yeah, when the Manchester Quintet Band would do their winter gigs, they'd play. In the program, they'd be, you'd see, band, orchestra, band, orchestra. So a lot of, a lot of these guys doubled. Yeah. And in my instrumentation list, um, in my personnel list, I have, um, you know, what brass instrument they played and then what string instrument they played yeah so they could easily make a small a small uh string ensemble mm-hmm. yeah i mean they weren't playing beethoven yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> right. but yeah they were playing and then of course there are all these you know dignum can ar- could arrange it down to the instrumentation mm-hmm. i mean again that he he must i don't see how he ever slept <laughs> or how he ever interacted with his family. 
he was always writing, always teaching, always playing, always practicing. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Maybe he's one of these Mozart types that was just able to crank it out really fast. Who knows? And I and I don't think any of us really understand that yet. Because mm -hmm. because everybody in the brass band world hears Dignum and they, you know, all they think of is Manchester Cornet Band. Mm -hmm. They think that's all he did, you know, yeah. when he was still working in the mills for ten years, and that was not a job that he enjoyed at mm -hmm. all. But yeah. he had to put bread on the, you know, he had to put bread on the table. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Being at church all the time, I mean, it's not Catholic. I'm I'm coming to learn. Um, being an organist and choir director for a Catholic church is not like being an organist and choir director for a Protestant church, hmm. where you just have to be there twice on Sunday and maybe a you know one rehearsal with your choir. Hmm. There are so many of these other days and so many of these other masses and the vesper services and this. Hmm. It's mind blowing, you know. Well, it's mind blowing to me because I'm not Catholic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's where that's where my good friend Mike comes in, O'Connor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fill the because gaps. He, he's 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 taught me a lot. And then there's this tremendous person over at the University of Durham in England that I can't thank enough, who has written an entire history of the Catholic Catholic music in England for his dissertation. And I still haven't emailed him yet because I do have questions. So it sounds like we were able to go through basically the whole history of the, or the known, the currently known history of the Manchester oh, I, I, I kept some stuff. Digging. I kept some stuff from you. So I didn't yeah. want to give, I didn't want to give away the whole. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, spill keep, all the beans. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> is is there uh, anything that you, that you wish to <laughs> disclose? Anything you'd like to add to maybe add a little, tie a little nice bow on top of the, the discussion? Or do you think that? Oh, let's see. The, the, the timeline is, is kind of a nice place to end. It's totally up to you. I think that even though this small, this small group of us Civil War band people know about the music, have played the music, know Dignam's name, know Goodwin's name, I think the larger world of American musicology has no idea. Everybody knows Gilmore and Sousa. Mm -hmm. But not everybody knows that every town in New England had their own brass band. Everybody's father, brother, uncle was playing music. Because otherwise, where were they going to hear it? Except in church. Just the immense amount of playing that was going on. If there was a flag raising, the band was there. If there was a, of course, if there was a parade, the band was there. They were serenading people in the evenings. The band would go by, every, you know, in the funeral procession. Of course, we don't see funeral processions now, but okay. then they did. The picnics and the outings in the summer in this area were tremendous. Every church every church's ladies society sponsored picnics hmm. whether it was in the grove outside of town or it was up in the lakes region where the entire church and all their family and all their friends would get on the train with the band hmm. 
The band would entertain them and play on the train up to the lakes region. They'd have their picnic, they'd have dancing, the band would be there playing all day long. They'd come back to Manchester after a, a beautiful day at the lake, the band would play on the train. So these kinds of events that people aren't aware of, because these days we can put something in our ear and hear instant music. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I think for most people, it's pretty inconceivable how important that band was and what that band meant to the town a sense of a sense of pride that's why they were brought with the firemen and with the militias and with the regiments mm -hmm. so with the research that's being done by people like yourself and the bands being played like the the serenade band in federal city and stuff are you hoping that this work and music making uh, makes these names more well-known to the education world and stuff? More, more well-known to the education world, more well-known to people who study American music and might not make short shrift. That's probably not fair, but just don't see the importance of people like Dignam to the musical aspect of a of of the town of the of a, of the society, mm -hmm. because he had his hand in every he had his fingers in in all the pies. Yeah, Manchester, man, the Amiskeg Manufacturing Company in Manchester is known as a mill town, which has a lot of negative connotation, mm -hmm. but it was such a musical town. It's pretty unbelievable, and I'm sure Lowell, Lawrence, Salem. We're all the same, but no one has done the research. No one's done the research on the Boston bands. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. That's that was the center. I mean, people know the New York bands because they've read um, Strong's diary. Mm. They know the what happened in Philadelphia. The big cities, people know that because those newspapers are easily accessible. Mm -hmm. It's the, you know, it's the dirty work that has to be done in little towns like Manchester mm -hmm. that were, we're on the world stage for textiles and steam locomotives. And they need to be on, you know, they need to be known for their musical contributions because Dignam's band was known from Portland, Maine to Florida. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And not only just the tiny towns, but in D.C. and New York and Boston. Yeah, yeah. The scope and the reach and the influence of the band yeah. is is incredible. And winter of fifty seven, fifty eight, he got a telegram from Boston asking him to become the leader of a band in Boston, hmm. and he turned it down. Yeah. Which band was it? It was most likely Flag's band of Boston because Flag went from his his band to Worcester. But the the newspaper had a small account saying, "We're so glad Mr. Dignam has decided to stay in Manchester." And that's all that's all the newspaper said. Because, you know, the external sources are trying to pull him away from us. But then Walter Dignam's great grandson, also named Walter Dignam, is retired from the Manchester 
fire department and he lives in Goffstown. And I have known Walter for tw over 20 years. Hmm. And the living Walter has a scrapbook owned by his great-great-grandfather, Walter Dignam. Hmm. Oh. Okay. It's a scrapbook. The thing is this huge. It's, it's gigantic. And so one summer, Walter let me borrow the scrapbook and I've, I've had photocopies of the music, five pages of it, where Walter in the 1850s would cut out programs, cut out newspaper articles and paste them in the scrapbook. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The living Walter allowed me to you borrow the entire scrapbook for an entire summer so I could go through and document and look at it because the photocopy in the photocopies the the glue that Walter used bled through so th some things were hard to read but now I can now, then I could really go in and look at every article and trace it back to whatever newspaper that he took it out of and all of the programs that he took out and then he also has programs from the orchestra the orchestral gigs he did with Stratton where the Boston musicians would come up and play and the gigs and the, sorry, not the gigs, the soirees yeah. that he played with <laughs> Mr. Baldwin. Um, so yeah, all of this stuff, the, and you know, the fact that, you know, he was, he was approached by Boston bands, I think, you know, would lead us to believe that he was wanted for his expertise. Yeah, his leadership abilities. Leadership yeah. abilities. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a person in the American band history that needs to be known more widely and, and studied exactly. in. And so all the work that you're doing and, and, you know, taking the time to do this interview and stuff is gonna, I think, make strides, you know, in, in getting that name out there and having people mm. know about him. So we thank you so much for, for all, all the hard work and research and all that kind of stuff that you've been doing. It's, it's incredible. Oh, thank you. Well, um, uh, you're very welcome, and I really, I really thank you for for doing this. This is this is tremendous. I hope, I hope you get a lot of traffic. <laughs> thank you again so much, Sue Kinney, for coming on to the Early American Brass Band podcast. It was a ton of fun getting to hear you talk about all the really in-depth research that you've done with the Manchester Cornet Band and all of the early American brass bands from that New England area. So, thank you so much. Yeah, I definitely did not realize that there were that many, uh, or maybe that they were so closely concentrated up there uh, with as far as the bands go and being so close to Boston too. You know, I didn't quite realize the geography of that before we started. And then when I looked up a map of New Hampshire in the middle of the episode, I realized how close they were to Boston. So that makes a lot of sense that they were going down there all the time. This episode's featured album is from the Eastman Wind Ensemble. This is the second Civil War music album that they put out titled Homespun America that was put out by Donald Hunsberger. This was made in 1976 and a fun tidbit about it actually has Alan Vizzuti playing the principal E-flat cornet part on this album. It's, it's a lesser known album. A lot of people know obviously the Civil War, it's music, it sounds by uh, Dr. Frederick Fennell, but this is this album's kind of a sleeper. It's got a lot of great music on it, a lot of great Manchester cornet band music in it. Uh, the instruments are uh, modern instruments, they're not period instruments on this recording, but uh, you, you can't beat hearing Alan Vizzuti screaming on these E-flat marches and polkas and all this type of stuff. It was awesome. 
definitely not a mistake is made in that chair on this album it's a it's a fun listen and like chris said there's a very very strong manchester cornet band connection there uh with most of the music on this album coming from those band books so uh go check it out you can find uh links to purchase it in the show notes for this episode and also on the discography tab on our website that's eabbpodcast.com anything uh you could imagine relating to early american brass bands is up there so we hope that you'll check that out uh when you're finished listening to the album thank you so much and we'll see you next week <laughs>